In Stoneville, Sandgate, Nil Meander, Nil Dotty, Yorkie, Spence, Curanda, they're all up listening to Macca. Barney, first to you, how's things in Butler? Look, we're pretty lucky. We're, we're not in drought. It's still green up our way. But as you know, we've got our challenges up there. We've got this uh, high-voltage power line that we're trying to get put underground, and that's taking a lot of people's time and effort. And we've got, obviously, a government that's not listening for the benefit of the future generations. Sort of important to more and more... I'm getting more and more letters about uh, all these sort of things from all over Australia, Victoria, uh, New South Wales, and I suppose that's just where it's happening at the moment, but I suppose in the future, who knows? Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, we're, we're trying to look after the environment for our kids and their kids, and it's just the right thing to do. So I think the Minister, Chris Bowen, has got to bite the bullet and say this is what's going to happen for a better Australia. The rush to renewables is probably the problem. I think the rush to everything. Uh, when you start rushing things, you tend to fall over and hurt yourself. Yeah, or, or occasionally put a uh, boring machine in a, in, in a big hole. <laughs> but, you know, once again, we hopped out of an industry that was doing quite poorly in, in regard to pricing with apples. And, of course, you know, we all know how the supermarkets affect the pricing for producers and then we've seen this dramatic downturn in livestock prices over the last 12 months which is just really impacting people you know we've seen 60 70 percent drop in the price of cattle and sheep and that's representing sort of an 80 95 percent reduction in income for livestock producers so you know a lot of these small country towns are going to do a pretty pretty tough in the next 12 to 18 months under these prices pick up again beaming into dilly southport's fine mount barker's chilly at salisbury plain they're cleaning up the badges For some, the radio dial is set, while others are surfing the internet. They're logging on to Macca on a Sunday morning. I wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Wherever you are, I'd love to talk to you. 1300 700 222 is our number. I've got something here for you um, that uh, one of my correspondents... uh, sent in and it's it's quite quite well it's very interesting actually it says um it's from um what does it say it's from uh giles and he says uh i've been wondering this came in a couple of weeks ago when it was still a little cold but yeah a couple of weeks ago i've been wandering along the tamar in lonnie with Charlie and Loki, my enthusiastic French bulldogs, since before sunrise listening, clear skies with frost on the ground, as the weather report. I loved the bloke with the from Horns Plus. Sunday for me is a series of highlights. You and the hounds from sunrise, the odd French pastry and coffee, isn't it nice on Sundays? Then Ross and I have a session playing jazz standards on our bass saxophones, baritone. That's the baritone saxophone. The sound of the baritone sax is just awesome. Two of them are unbelievable. Swing music is just the most wonderful thing on earth and just can't get enough of it. You'd like to hear it. This is only a small, small spasm. They're walking along. They're playing the, the baritone, a couple of baritone sexes together. This is what it sounds sort of like. This is um, a little bit of Giles and his mate, Ross. <laughs> I think it's a little of heart and soul. Sounds like a couple of sounding intruders, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it's fabulous. Seafood, Jonathan Ross. Yeah, I think it's good. Um, is a series of highlights, but playing the baritones of the bass sax. 
I always call it the Barry, but it is a bass sax, isn't it, John, I suppose? The bass sax is just awesome. Two of them. What did you think, John? Would you give it out? What did you give out? Ten, seven, six, six and a half. <laughs> yeah, definitely get a pass. Bit more. Yeah. No, they say um, swing music is just the most wonderful thing on earth, and I just can't get enough of it. Says uh, Giles. Thank you, Giles. Um, and speaking of sounds, this is a sound uh, in my garden which I heard the other day. I've heard it around the suburb. But I think it's come to my garden, which is really nice. Have a listen. That's all I could get of it um, with traffic and stuff. But it's, I think it's the green dwarf trees. It's only as big as your thumbnail. And I haven't seen it here in my place. I think that's what it is, the dwarf uh, green tree frog. But I saw it um, recently. I found it when I say about a year ago. I found one in a in a Strelitzia of all places. All places. It was uh, in a Strelitzia. Hard to see. And my friend the other day, Kel, said they saw a um, they found a, a green tree snake. Um, and when it came down, the, slithered down the tree. It was over a meter, a meter, a meter and a half long. Isn't that lovely? Green tree snake. There was one at our place too, but I didn't see it. My neighbour did. Uh, and speaking of sounds, Alex Smith says, the wonga pigeon, look it up in your books, in your bird book, is a magnificent looking pigeon, but their endless hooting call is driving me up the wall. I've attached about 30 seconds recorded on the phone. This is the sound of the vine scrub country, vine scrub country, halfway down the range near Toowoomba. The wongas go all day at this time of year, can be quite piercing when very close. And uh, best regards from the scrub country, says Alex, Alex Smith. I'll play that again. Uh, I'll play that again. Have a listen to it. I think it's a fabulous call. But see, the problem is, for some people, I don't care if frogs croak outside my window all night. Um, but some people can't stand it. They complain about frog noises or whatever they complain about. Like... Alex is complaining about the Wonga pigeons. Wongas go all day at this time of the year. He sent me a sound. I'll try and find it, which he recorded on his phone. But I think, well, I don't know. I think you've got to put up with it, haven't you? Um, but the, uh, do you like the baritone sax? I love the baritone sax, but um, I played you a spasm of the baritone sax. We'll talk to you, 1300 2 I've got quite a few little Christmas cards, and the messages on the Christmas cards are really... They're like little letters, you know. They're not just nice little messages for me and for you as well about uh, uh, Christmas time. We'll play some Christmas songs this morning because um, it's Christmas time, and I think Christmas is an important time of the year for renewal and all those sort of things. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. Hello, Macca. My name's Sandra. I'm actually visiting Christmas Island at the moment. Oh, wow, Sandra. Uh, what do you do? Why, why are you visiting Christmas Island? I came over here to see the crab migration, but unfortunately um, it hasn't rained, so the migration hasn't happened yet. It's um, extremely dry over here. So are you going to wait for it to rain? Because uh, there's a bit of rain no. around, isn't there? Uh, no, no, there's been nothing. Um, you know, the old weather reports say it's going to rain, but it's just you know beautiful blue skies and high humidity and that's about it we haven't there hasn't been any rain 
And unfortunately, I've got to head back to the mainland, so I'm, I'm going to miss it. Where, whereabouts in the, where, where are you from? I'm from a little place called Bungadoo in Queensland. It's about 45 minutes northwest of Bundaberg. Uh-huh. And, and you really went over just to see the migration? Yeah, purely came over to see the migration um, because it only happens uh, uh, you know, around this time of each year. Mm-hmm. And um, the November migration happened, but it was only fairly minor, and we were hoping it was going to be a bigger one in December, but it hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, so maybe people who are visiting a bit later in the year or early next year may get to see it. Yeah, so they wait for the rain. Uh, see, I didn't, I, I've seen mm. photos and, and some video of the migration of the crabs, and they're all over the place, aren't they? But So I didn't know it was linked yeah, to the, the rain. Yeah, the males go down earlier, and um, and then once it rains, then the ladies go down to, to lay their eggs, and then they all move back, back up into the forest. And the forest is extremely dry, you know, there's, so even the big birds' nests up in the trees are looking really miserable. They're, they're all wilting. A lot of leaf litter because the trees are dropping their leaves just to basically survive. Uh huh. But they des- you know, it's like most places, they desperately need rain. Yeah, and the wet hasn't started yeah. up up north. You're a fair way off the coast, aren't you? At Christmas Island, you're about four hours behind time, aren't you? Behind the east yeah, coast. Yeah, um, just just gone three here. So um, we're closer to Indonesia than we are to the mainland of Australia, but you know it is managed by Western Australia. Are the you, island. Have you been there before? No, this was my first time. I'd been on a bucket list, and I'd been planning it, planning it for a while because you need to book ahead to get on the flights. There's only two flights a week, and um, so it took a while to get a booking and and come over. But but it's an interesting place anyway. Or you know. Well, tell All besides us, the crabs. Give us, a, give us a look at Christmas Island through your eyes, Sandra. Um, well, it's a small island. It looks like a Scotty dog plonked out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, just south of Indonesia. Uh, it's, and it's, it's, it's a volcanic, so it, and it's come up on, through three processes, so it looks a bit like a Christmas cake, so it steps down on different tiers. So you have parts of the, the communities down lower and then you go up up one tier and you go to another part of the community further up. But it's mainly um, used for phosphorus mining and it has quite a checkered history with the, with the mining going back to the late 1800s and has been owned by you know, a few different countries, you know, including Singapore and places like that and the British. So a lot of history, even the Japanese took it over for a couple of years during the, the war. So besides just coming for the crabs, just the history and the, the geology and the, the plant life and the bird life is phenomenal. So, so for a tourist, it's very interesting. Yeah, Sandra, what do you do for a living? Um, I'm a, a very young self-funded retiree. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, um, what did you I do? was a town planner. For a while, and prior to that, I was in the air force. So uh, we need lots of tra- we need lots of town planners. When you look around the place, I'll tell you, town and city planners, just just planners generally, Sandra. Mm. <laughs> but you a- need ethical ones too, though. Oh well, that goes without saying, doesn't it? Or it should do. That's right. <laughs> should, yeah, should do. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> go on. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so at the moment it's um, 27 degrees and about 85% humidity. So 
you need to have air conditioning. Yeah, well, well, on the mainland, mm. it's been really hot right across Australia, really. Um, in the mm, in the yeah. fo- in the forties in many places, and lots of storms around, and uh, you know, flooding rains in some places, and bushfires here and there. So typical typical summer in in uh, Australia, I think, depending where you are. And the harvest yes, yes. harvest is on. Some of them were asked to um, stop harvesting yesterday because it was so hot that uh, a spark could you know start a a fire and there was high wind, so yeah, can be a dangerous time. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing here is everything uh, has to be imported. All the fuel, most of the foods, they can't grow a lot of food because there's no real soil content to grow food. So everything's extremely expensive. Um, I saw a cauliflower yesterday, half a cauliflower, eight dollars, and um, the fuel is three dollars a litre. Wow. So, so um, it's not a it's not a cheap place to come and visit. It sorry, it doesn't really matter whether you come over for the crabs. It's just got if you're a history buff or a, you know geology or plants or birds, it has something for everybody. So it's it's a good place to make an effort to at least uh, put it on the bucket list to come and visit. On the bucket list. Good on you, Sandra. Great to talk yeah. to you. No worries. Merry Christmas. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. G'day. This is Macca. G'day, Macca. G'day. Nathan's calling. G'day, it's Nathan calling from Hobart. How are you? Good, thanks, Nate. That's all right, mate. Um, it's a magnificent morning here in Hobart. I just thought I'd call and say g'day. I'm on my way to have a game of golf. Oh. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I'll say, you do this, this is a regular weekend thing for you, Nathan? Well, not no, not not really. Whenever we try, I've got two, um, two old and dear mates that um, we've turned, a couple of us turned 50 this year, so we're trying to make it a priority to get out and play a little bit more. So today's a, a day that we're able to do that. It's pretty challenging at times with family and, and whatnot, but, um, but yeah, we, we've made the, uh, made the effort today and we're going to go out and enjoy the super, super day that it is here in Hobart. Well, it's a good thing to do. When you just said that, you know, I wonder, because it seems we're stressed a lot and, and you say uh, it's time to get out there. We don't have any time anymore. I think we've got to try and make time, Nathan, don't we? I mean, I really think it's it's obviously important for you to have a game of golf and it's important for everybody to do something that they like, whatever it is, you know, knitting or running or whatever, just taking the time to do something for yourself because this is not the world we lived in 50, 50 years ago. It's a, it's a completely different world and it's very stressful and very fast and the bloody phone goes all the time. Oh, here's an email. Oh, here's a, oh. Do you know what I mean? And and I think the things that you're doing like today, you should try and do it more often. I mean, you can't play golf all week, but you get my drift? Oh, look, absolutely. It's um, you, you do have to make the time and, and I think... Um, you know, when you're able to do it with a couple of mates and, and um, you know, you, you've got to cherish it. And, and like you say, you've got to enjoy it when you can. And, and um, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to, to be able to get together and, and have a wander around and have a bit of a catch up and a chat and, you know, talk with, with close mates is always uh, something very special, I think. Yeah. I, because uh, I've been doing this program a while, I've travelled around to all our states and capital. I wish I was in Hobart this morning. How's Christmas looking in Hobart? Is it is the town dressed up? I, I think Christmas is a great time and I think we need Christmas for whatever reason, just for a big, the fact that it's a holiday and it's a nice time to draw the line under the year, um, all those sort of things, we get together with friends, maybe patch up you know, a few beefs that you've had. I think Christmas is a great time. What's Hobart look like, Nate? 
Yeah, yeah. Look, Hobart's um, Hobart's looking quite festive. Um, we got lots of colour and decorations, and um, I was driving across the Tasman Bridge this morning, and and there was a cruise ship moseying along up the Derwent River, and we got a lot of those in this time of year. I think there's um, oh something like sixty to a hundred um, booked over the wow. you know through until through until March April. So we oh. get a lot of lot of tourists wandering yeah. around the city, which is great to see as well. My uh, my mate uh, the drummer uh, Merv, he uh, he's uh, he's a drummer, and he just returned from a cruise. He, they went to only a short cruise. He said he told me, I think it was a P and O, but I'm not sure. And they went to Kangaroo Island, and they got off in Kangaroo Island, just a short cruise. I think it went from Sydney, Melbourne, Kangaroo Island, and back again. But that would be nice. But, um, yeah, there's cruise boats everywhere, everywhere. Uh, you see them in the, in the harbour. It's the, it's, the, it's the coming thing. They were, they, were, they were big for a while, and then COVID sort of stopped it, and now they're bigger than ever, I reckon, Nathan. Well, look, yeah, we, like I say, we've got heaps coming in here, and... and um you know, I think it's uh, it, it's good for the population and the shops, and we uh, yeah we have have heaps of visitors wandering around, which is which is good to see. But um, Macca, yeah, look, I, I've travelled quite a bit as well over the over the years. Certainly back through the nineties, I was, used to travel around Australia a lot, and um, used to listen to you back then on a, on a Sunday morning when I could, and and um, yeah, a lot of a lot of great places in Tassie uh, in Australia. But you know, I think um, Tassie's one of the great ones, and I'm probably a bit biased there being a Tasmanian. <laughs> But um, but yeah, just wanted to also you know shout out to all of those people in different places. I know a lot of places are struggling with you know bushfires, and there's a cyclone coming up in Queensland, and and um, you know sitting down here this morning, and there's not a breath of wind and or a cloud in the sky, and just um, realising how lucky you know that um, that we are. And so I just wanted to yeah say good day to everyone and, and to you, Macca, and um, wish everyone you know a, a safe and and happy Christmas and and um, yeah, be safe out there. Good on you, Nath. I hope you go around in par, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Macca. <laughs> Good on you. See you, Nathan. <laughs> See you, mate. It's Robert Robertson calling Macca. I'm in uh, Melbourne, but uh, following up a, a call I tried to make a couple of weeks ago uh, from Medellin in Colombia, South America. Oh, that's right. Uh, Robert, you should have been, you should have been there. It was, it was an interesting morning. It was a great morning. But we had a few technical issues, <coughs> but it all worked. Um, but um, it was lovely to be in Melbourne, uh, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah. This is this is Robbie Robert. We call him Robbie, but he calls himself Robert. But it's Robbie Robertson, and he's a member of the uh, Stella Brighton Icebergers. Um, we did, and uh, but he was where you were over. Where were you, Robert, when you ran, tried to ring us? Well, I was in uh, I was in a car on the way to a wedding at uh, Medellin. Medellin's the uh, Lovely uh, town, uh, probably the second biggest town, second to uh, Bogota in uh, Colombia. Right. And uh, this uh, wedding um, was up in the hills. It was in a forest and uh, the most beautiful setting uh, overlooking the city and um, uh, a very informal um, service, but it uh, finished with uh, everyone throwing uh, eucalyptus leaves over the uh, the married couple. Uh, there was an Australian boy and a, a, a Colombian girl, and uh, and they walked off to the uh, the, the sounds of John Denver's uh, Country Roads. Uh, it was a reggae version of it, though, by uh, um, oh, Toots and the May Maytale. Toots, Toots and the Maytale, yep. 
you know that uh, song? I know, I know Toots, Toots, Toots. Yeah, I know Toots. yeah. Well, it was just the most wonderful uh, finale to uh, a wedding. But um, uh, we had a couple of days uh, in Medellin and uh, went to. Uh, I was uh, following up uh, your program from months ago, listening to uh, uh, John Alvear. Um, oh yeah, yep, yep. Who who went to. Uh, I think see Sergio Garcia, the uh, guitarist, um, and we headed off in that direction out of uh, out of Medellin. But uh, we want to get to a place called Guatape, uh, and uh, where which is a lovely little town. And um, uh, just outside of the town is this uh, rock, La Piedra de Perón, uh, which um, is a, a 200 meter high rock with a an external staircase to it. And uh, uh, if you climb that and you got to the top, you're at about an elevation of uh, 2.2 thousand meters. So uh, uh, that was a very exciting thing to do. And unfortunately, we couldn't uh, we couldn't get to see. Um, uh, uh, the guitar yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a lovely thing to do, Rob, um, to go to Colombia. And, yeah, Rob, John Alviar, he's a guitar player. He's a teacher at a, at a local school, but um, he's from there and he makes instruments and stuff like that. So, yeah, very musical place, I'd say, uh, is Colombia, uh, South America yeah, generally. Yeah. I Just before I did that, I went to... Um, uh, Peru and um, and further to your uh, some another uh, uh, one of your uh, listeners, um, I went to uh, Cusco up in the uh, in the Andes. Um, mm-hmm. That's an elevation of about three, uh, over, just over three thousand meters, and um, had several days there looking at various uh, Inca sites, and and that was the uh, the starting point for the uh, a trip to Machu Picchu, which. Um, uh, I don't know whether you've done that. But no. I know many of you, you, probably many of your listeners have. Oh, but, yes. uh, that yeah, well, was the most, the most amazing experience, that one. And that's the in, uh, 3,000 odd metres, that's the inversion level, about 10,000 feet. That's the inversion level, isn't it? Where you, When you're flying in a small plane, if you go above that, you, you need probably need some oxygen. Uh, yes, although I did visit some sites at 4,000 metres and uh, didn't have any trouble. Uh, with the altitude, um, but I did take the advice of, uh, of your previous listener who said that, um, uh, you know, the best thing to do is acclimatise uh, at, at a, a higher altitude if you're going to be, you know, doing work in the... Uh, in yeah. the Robbie, you know. great to talk to you this morning, mate, um, and we'll have to catch up soon. A bit, we're in Melbourne. We love Melbourne. I love travelling around our great uh, cities, but Melbourne was just great. It was really humming and... Um, and we missed you, but it was great to talk to you, mate. Good on you. Well, I'm sorry I missed you that weekend, but the um, you'll be pleased to know that we're running the Olsen Hooper event this morning, which was that event that you came down to a couple of years ago, well, quite a few years ago at the, now. At the Brighton Bars. Yeah, and we gave right. you that outfit, remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. Got to go, but nice to talk to you, Robbie. Bye. Good on you, Macca. All the best. See you, bye. G'day, Macca. It's Kim in Canberra. How are you going? Good, thanks, Kim. Um, yeah, just on the saxophones, there is a bass saxophone um, that's bigger than the baritone. Um, it's a it's a big thing, and they cost. I think the the cost is about twenty five thousand dollars. You got to put a twelve thousand dollar deposit when you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's, the, it's not the baritone sax. It's a it's a bass sax. There's a bigger one than the baritone. Yeah, I, I've got I play the tenor and I've got an alto as well and the clarinet. But um, yeah, the baritones 
it's got a tone all of its own. You really know it as soon as you hear a baritone. Yeah. And I suspect the bass, I've never really heard a bass. I suspect the bass would be you, similar to the baritone. Do you think that one I played, which I'll play again now, um, do you think that's a, um, a bass or a baritone? Have a listen. It sounded like a baritone. It sounded like... What do you reckon? I think that could be a bass, actually. Did they say it was bass or baritone? Uh, well, he said bass, sax, but I, I just... Yeah, said... no, yeah, no, that's... I'd say that is a bass. And you reckon they're about 25 grand each? Yeah, if you go, if you want to sell them, if you want a good one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. See, you learn something every... Did you know that, John? I didn't... Yeah, John knew that, but see, I'm just... I'm just a... Um, ingenue when it comes to uh, saxophones, but um, so that's probably a bass. They're both, yeah. I, I you can tell too by the slow intonation because they're very hard to play quickly because the notes are so big, and so the fastest of the saxophones is the littler ones like the altos and the sopranos. Like your Kenny G plays his soprano at about a million miles an hour, no one likes it really, yeah. But um, um, yeah, and but for me, it's a tenor, the ten, a tenor is really the the king of the saxophones. I think most people agree that the tenor is the, the best of all the saxophones. Yeah, and you, you play, obviously, Kim? Yeah, I'll be playing today with the Canberra Blues Society. We've got our um, our monthly jam on our Christmas party. That's this afternoon at the Harmony German Club at 2 o'clock. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, yeah, there'll be um, sets of jammers getting up, three songs each, and then they'll go from 2 to 5. And, uh, yeah, should be good. So I reckon the... The bass sax would be hard to play, a bit like a tuba. Need a lot of breath, eh? For like a tuba I, or a, um, yeah, one of those uh, big brass instruments. Yeah, and maybe it's a sit-down job too. I, I suspect. Um, I don't don't know if you'd be able to stand up and play it. Um, you'd have to have all sorts of uh, stuff around your back to hold it because it'd really yeah. I'll have to find out. I'll find out. I'll let you know. Yeah, I've got a I've got a track. Um, an old Dixie track with a bloke who takes a solo on the tuba, and it's really lovely, but a lot of breath. You need a lot of breath for those things, don't you? You do, yeah, yeah. I, I suspect that the bass would be a lot of breath. <laughs> $25,000. I'll have to look it up on the thingo and have a look at one. Yeah, have a look for, for a Selma. I think there's not many people make them, um, but Selma, you know, Selma have been making saxophones for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, I think. But, um, yeah. So the Canberra um, Blues Club is at this afternoon where? The Canberra Blues Society, at, at, it's going to be at the, the Harmony German Club hosted for us. Um, it's a big event and, um, yeah, once a month and today's our last hurrah for the year. And uh, Well, thanks for we'll... informing us, Kim. Good on you, mate. Good on you, mate. Have a good one. See you, mate. Bye. Oh, Matthew, it's Brendan calling from Antarctica. Good morning. Oh, good day, Brendan. Tell me your story. How are you? Oh, I'm good, mate. Yeah, yourself. Oh, mate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, thanks. Yeah, sorry, slight delay, but um, I, uh, I'm, I'm from Canberra, and um, yeah, I'm working as a chef down here at the moment. So just working for the summer season. So um, yeah, sort of got up early and went out the back of the kitchen. There's a little penguin wandering past. So I thought I'd, I'd share that with you this morning. You're the most important bloke there, really. I'd say you, you, you chefs. Um, an army marches on its stomach, Brendan, as you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I mean, there's a lot of important work, obviously, that goes down here, research-wise. But uh, uh, I suppose.
suppose they do need to, you know, a, a full stomach to to get the brain ticking and and out into the cold. So yeah, you know, it's a yeah, it's a good job my first time down here. So it's uh, it's interesting. Yes, Brendan, it would be when, especially when you can look out the window and see a penguin there. Um, and uh, should you give me a weather report? I suppose it's white down there. Yeah, it is white. It's starting to uh, it's starting to. Uh to get a little bit warmer, um, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit of snow falling, sort of 10 to 15 knots. We, we talk in knots down here, which is the first <laughs> first time I've ever, I've ever talked in knots. But um, yeah, it's a yeah, light breeze, um, a bit overcast. Um, yeah, it's oh, it's probably a, about minus two, minus three, so fairly mild. Yeah, well, look, you you should keep in touch with us. You got Christmas dinner planned? I suppose you have. Oh, we have. We get our supply ship that comes through um, on the 22nd, roughly, um, all things uh, going right. So it's a pretty busy period. So we generally don't, I think we struggle to, to celebrate it on the day, but um, it depends on how things work in that respect. And we'll, uh, we'll have something at some stage, you know, during the, during the Christmas period. Absolutely. All right, Brendan. Look, I've got to fly, but we'll talk to you on Christmas Eve, OK? Good on you, mate. Good on you. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Brendan in Antarctica. This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News. And when I was in Gundagai a few weeks ago, I met a numberophile. What or who is a numberophile? Izzy Perko is. And umbrophiles in Australia and around the world, indeed, are waiting for 2028. That's when a total solar eclipse commences in the Indian Ocean, passes over the Christmas and Cocos Island groups, crosses the Northern Territory, grazes South Australia into Queensland and then directly over Sydney. Now, these umbrophiles are desperate people. They will travel the world. So in Australia, in 2028, we can expect thousands of people in that narrow band that goes right across Australia. And lots will go to Sydney because that's one of the few places where you'll be able to see it. But first, back to Gundagai, to the museum there. Come and meet Izzy Perko. He'll tell you all about it. I'm in Gundagai. I'm talking to Izzy Perko. Izzy, you're the curator of the... I'm just a volunteer at the museum. I've only been here for about four years, but I'm a COVID refugee from inner Sydney and I've found my home in Gundagai now. And you've got a whole lot of stuff, a history of not only Gundagai, but I suppose Australia from well, early times. Well, yeah, most of Australia, the old furphy engines and uh, washing machines. But the only thing we don't need, Singer sewing machines. We must have 27 of the blasted things. <laughs> they used to export those to India, didn't they? I think at, so, at yeah. Time my, was. My mother bought one from France, and mm. uh, when she passed away, left it here, and they said, oh, no, we don't want those. Mm. But uh, singer sewing machines, yeah. But everything else we basically keep, anything to do with the local area. Like I said, I've only been here four or five years, but I've, I've learned a lot about Gundagai and Australian farms because I used to be an inner city boy. COVID came along and did the great big change. My partner said, right, we're off to Gundagai. It was just like Green Acres. <laughs> I had my Park Street apartment view all over the harbour and all that. And I said, oh, what am I doing here? So I'm here amongst the, the chickens and the pigs and, and the strange characters of country town. It, it couldn't be further from inner city life, but I love it. Now, is he? you're interested in the moon and the stars and the sun. Tell me what's happening in four years' time. You rang us about it years ago, That's didn't right. you? Well, in um, 
I think 2028, Australia's going to have a total solar eclipse and actually goes right across the continent from roughly about Broome and finishes in Sydney, right in central Sydney. And it's only a very narrow path it takes. So I encourage people to, to look up Australian total solar eclipse and you will see that there, there is virtually the whole country can see this eclipse if they go within this small, say, 80 kilometre Band. Uh, band across the country, yeah. But I remember some years ago, people came from all over the world to see something here in Australia. Was it yes, in Western in, Australia? Or? In Western Australia, there was, there was one just last year. The first one I saw was over Seduna, but we went to the southern Flinders Ranges, and just as the sun was setting, it was eclipsed by the moon. It was the most magnificent sight. Now I've seen, I've gone around the world to, to see other ones, but yeah. we're, we're, we're lucky to get one. We had one in Cooktown in 2012, but one of the worst things was, both in Seduna and in Cooktown, the people would come up to the local tourist office and said, oh, that eclipse is magnificent but why did you have to have it on a wednesday now perko you went to turkey as well now tell went me that to turkey. story there was an eclipse in central turkey and I so was, you follow them around the world do you? yeah uh, <laughs> i'm called an umbrophile umbra as in umbrella as in shadow and had a small group with me we had the turkish driver found this uh, local village in central turkey amongst the hills perfect spot and all these turtles walking around which is unusual and we camped up there waiting for the the solar eclipse but all these farmers came around and shepherds and they said what were we doing there what, what, what are all these westerners doing here and the turkish driver said well we're having an eclipse here don't you know well, what's an eclipse they had no idea that there was eclipses happening mm. and sure enough within you know half an hour Daytime turned to night instantly, and all the cows are mooing and everything. But all these farmers started shooting at the sun. The gun? With, with guns. And they were saying, how dare, they're swallowing up the sun. How dare they? They were absolutely terrified, and they were just shooting at the sun. And sure enough, the sun came back, so they must have felt happy that they were, they were shooting it. But they had no idea that there was going to be an eclipse. You're um, a tragic, aren't you? A, a moon well, or stars yes, tragic? Yeah, How yeah. long? When did that start? Umbrafile. It was 2002. But honestly, when people see them, they will... If, they, if you see a total solar eclipse, you will be so hooked that you'll, it's like a drug, you'll want to go and see the next one. So this band, 80-kilometre band you're talking yeah. about, starts in the top of Western Australia? It starts sort of... in the top of Western Australia, goes through Central Australia and then dips down to New South Wales and the people of Sydney and the Central Coast will see it, but the people of Newcastle won't. All over the world, people people like you. Yeah, will be flocking. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, amazing thing. I've got lots of pairs of sunglasses, totally black sunglasses, and they produce them for every eclipse. And trust me, Macca, if, if you haven't seen a total solar eclipse, you will be hooked when you see it. Izzy, tell me the story about the Prince Alfred Bridge. For the longest time, we had a, a, a bridge here in Gundagai, which was the longest bridge in Australia before the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It was almost a, a kilometre long. Wooden bridge? Wooden bridge, and it went across the Murrumbidgee River, but it got pulled down, sadly, two years ago. It was a, it was a national disgrace, so they pulled it down. Uh, but it was very splintery. We still have the old railway bridge, so it's 50 years younger and it's mm. still just down here. People just love that, but we like to show here in the museum a few videos of what the bridge used to look like, and as you can see, we're just showing the video now, but it was a wonderfully long, long bridge, and it was named after Prince Alfred, who visited Australia. He was Queen Victoria's second eldest son. He had when was that? 
1852. He caused quite a bit of commotion in Australia because he was certainly a ladies' man and, and his mother was not impressed, not amused at all the shenanigans he got up to. So um, November, I think, 2021, the crews came in just virtually overnight and just pulled down. So the bridge is all gone? bridge is all gone, but right next to it is the railway bridge. That's also timber. It's still there. The rail finished in 1989 but the bridge is there we're hoping to to do a, a rail trail on it but you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy there now you want to get something from the old bridge but what's the story uh we just want one piece of timber to display here in in the museum we've got a perfect spot for it but the authorities i think it's crown lands department they've got the the timber still there but we still haven't got our our piece of timber so we've been asking for two years for one piece of timber from the old bridge. What's the problem? got no idea. I don't know. Bureaucracy, I suppose. This is the All Over News, and we've talked quite a lot about the roads, especially since the big rains and uh, the potholes, etc. This from Bob Morton from Western Australia. He says, Last week, after quite a few years, I did a run in the car to Badgingara and back. You've been there. Badgingara, of course. Consult your maps. If cities need freeways and overpasses, and indeed underpasses, Bob, country roads need better preparation and widening. Some 10 plus years ago, where the Wongan Hills Waddington Road meets the Great Eastern Highway to Wallabing, you know where that is too, the road surface was replaced, built up at least a metre or more most of the way and several metres in low and low-lying places. Again, happy to be corrected, but don't believe surfaces lasted any better than other roads. An observation would be, don't build up roads, build them wider in the country. Thank you, Bob. I've always said that. I always think roads are too narrow, but then again, roads are very expensive. I wonder what the bill is for replacing and renewing roads here in Australia. From our rowing correspondent, who is a man for all seasons, Mark Campbell, he says, As I was listening on the app this morning while clearing Lantana between 6.30 or 8 or so, and I think he was listening to our Melbourne program, I laughed as you referred to my manic weed pulling. Don't worry, I'm used to being teased about it. Half the district and all my friends call me the crazy Lantana man, or words to that effect. I'd almost finished the patch I was on. I was literally drenched in sweat and had a fair few scratches too, but I felt great. Mark is a rower, he's a vet, but he's a weeder. (laughs) amongst other things. Then you mentioned mental maintenance, which I think is a far better term than mental health and a few orders of magnitude better than wellness. The term wellness, says Mark, makes me feel a bit sick and I don't think I'm alone. Here, here. Here's the thing. We humans are a machine. We're the greatest machine ever made, but we're still a machine. Just like any good machine, we need good fuel, we need maintenance and we need to run our motor pretty much every day. Enough to heat up our core, that is, enough to sweat. A guy called Isaac Dineson apparently said, salt water is the cure for everything, sweat, the sea and tears. And I think he hit the nail on the head. So I love the reference to maintenance. It makes it sound like what it is, an obligation to maintain our machine. It doesn't matter how you do it. Gilbert said he basically lay in bed or on the floor and twitched when he was 104. We just need to move enough to sweat most days. Gilbert, for those who may not know, was one of our correspondents for many years. He died at the age of 106. He used to twitch and he also used to jiggle his solar plexus, but don't ask me to explain. Mark Campbell continues with fact one. As soon as we start moving, we make a chemical called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. 
B, D and F. It literally makes our brain grow, or at least repair. We make it in direct proportion to the intensity of the movement. You can't buy BDNF, but all you have to do is move vigorously for 10 minutes and you'll make your own massive dose. Fact two, abnormal cells, including cancer cells, are far less tolerant of hypothermia than normal cells. That's not direct proof, yet, that the heat we generate during vigorous exercise is enough to kill off cancer cells, but it's a very strong hypothesis, and cancer researchers all around the world are trying hard to prove it. Regardless of whether it does or not, you still get your BDNF, so you can't lose. But returning to the garden and weeding, Mark says miners, and I was talking about noisy miners, the Australian honey it is, which I can't abide in the garden. Mark says they're a pain in the proverbial. What I have noticed is that there are far fewer under the canopy of any area of bushland than on the edges. I think our gardens are a bit like the edges of bush areas. It's just an observation and there's absolutely no doubt we need more native plants in our gardens, full stop, and a lot less small white rock beds. My God. But bits of quality bushland, no matter how small, are the overall answer. Australian plants produce massive numbers of insects, especially in the canopy, and that's what those great little silver eyes and their mates really love. And speaking of which, Mark Campbell, I noticed in a paper a small, small little piece about some research that La Trobe University was doing about just the fact that these noisy miners are a pain in the neck. Your garden would be better off without them. They push everything out. Finally, Mark says, to all of us, that's you, keep up the mental maintenance. I said years ago that radio puts energy into the room while TV sucks it out. Maybe good radio in and of itself qualifies as mental maintenance. I think I just made a hypothesis, says Mark Campbell, our rowing stroke gardening stroke weeding stroke veterinary correspondent. Good morning, Macca. Michael Kelly ringing from Port Botany. Oh, good day, Michael. How are you? Our, oh. our marine pilot. That's right. That's right. Former Australian of the Year on Australia All Over. Yep. Good morning. Yeah, long time ago. Time's <laughs> flying. Time's, time is flying. Mm-hmm. Um, just want to ring up and thank all the lovely ladies for knitting the beanies throughout the year. Uh, number one item for seafarers. <laughs> You distribute them to all the seafarers. Um, it's a pretty lonely, isolated job, isn't it, being a seafarer for some of those overseas companies, Sir Michael? It is, Macca. Um, in the good old days, you used to get ashore. You'd, you'd get into the city and wander around, but these days they're in port 6, 10, 12 hours, so they don't get off. It's 10 months on board, a lot of them do, and, and this week we packed 1,800 Christmas gift packs for them, uh-huh. which are going out to the ships from today. Just a a little gift to say we love what you do and without you seafarers, nothing would happen. I suppose I've got a ship's captain in the studio with me this morning, but um, he's on the, the new endeavour, has, has been on the new endeavour. But I suppose um, when uh, Captain Cook and those were sailing around, they stopped here and there, didn't they? They stopped at, um, in the in the South Pacific, and they could get off and stuff. About 18 months or 12 to 18 months on board. By gee, that would test you, wouldn't it? Oh, they were they were real seafarers back then, true seafarers. And today it's all satellite navigation and no paper charts. And it's, it's, it's a different world out there, different world. And um, without them, as you know, we wouldn't have any Christmas presents and the, the world would stop. So we owe them a lot. Mm. And how's the port going? How's is Christmas busy? Lots of containers, lots of ships, or what? It doesn't stop, Macca. Um, cruise season's underway, as as everyone would 
would see is um, I think we had three cruise ships in yesterday. The amount of oil coming into Port Botany is incredible. Um, just I did a massive tanker last week, just full of jet fuel, all all for the all for the airport because we don't have a refinery here. It's all imported. So another good idea. Tank. Yeah, go on. No, not a great idea, but one <laughs> one one tanker sails, another comes in. So. Um, it's it's full on, it's full on. So I think the port's just about at capacity at the moment in Port Botany. I was talking to my mate uh, who plays drums with us when we do our concerts, um, Merv, Merv Dick, and he said he just went on a cruise to, um, he was playing, but went on. they went to Kangaroo Island, I think, and we were just uh, talking to somebody, who was it, in uh, in Nathan in Hobart, about cruise boats just routinely. They do they do hundreds of cruise boats down in Tassie, so that's the the other big industry. But we all need uh, we all need fuel for all those things, don't we? They uh, yeah, the cruise cruise ships they burn a lot of fuel. Mm. They're on a strict timetable, so when they leave Sydney, they'll some of them do twenty knots, which is which is very fast to get to get to the next port. So there's a dedicated little tanker in Sydney. That refuels them, and um, yeah, it's it's a busy busy time of the year. We just had the Virgin ship come in during the week. That was that was quite an extravaganza. Yeah, it always is with Mister Virgin, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, he, um, everything's a, yeah, everything's an extravaganza with him. He um, yeah, he caused a lot of disruption to um, to the Manly ferries. Yeah, the the Virgin ships. So um, a few people were late. Getting home, thanks to the Mr. Branson. Mr. Branson, yeah. <laughs> Michael, good on you. Thanks for your reports this year, and uh, yeah, have a good Christmas. We'll talk next yeah. year. Likewise, thanks, Maka. Good Bye. on you, mate. Bye. This week, the Captain Cook Society are celebrating the launch 30 years ago in '93 in Fremantle of the new endeavour. It's a mighty, a mighty ship. Lots of people on board from Cooktown to all over. And that's where I met John Singleton. Come and meet him. I'm on board the Endeavour in Sydney Harbour, and I'm talking to John Singleton. John, it's great to see you. Uh, you're, looking, you're looking well, mate. You're looking well. I feel good, mate. You look beautiful too. <laughs> Tell me about you and the Endeavour. What's the story? Well, a long time ago, Bruce Stannard, who's a friend of mine by the Bulletin magazine, came to see me at my little office back in the 80s and told me about this Endeavour, how he's going to rebuild it, and they'd run out of money. And he just got the one time in my life that I was partially educated. <laughs> I'd read a book called The Fatal Shore mm. by Robert Hughes. I loved it so much I went away to Fiji to read all the logs. So I became so instilled with the history of Australia. I thought, this cook, what an adventurer. Arriving here, not knowing where he was going, going to Tahiti, opening his instructions and saying he has to go to the great northern land, finding Tasmania, thinking it was part of Australia. I mean, it was just a wonderful story, and I couldn't believe that someone was going to rebuild the Endeavour. And Alan Bond, when he had money, other people's money, he was going to build it. This is Bruce Stannard, who had raised all the money himself, to his great credit. He knew me from the Walden, so he knew we were floating, going public, so he thought I might have a quid. So for some reason, I said, he needed millions, so I said, well, I'll give you a million, da-da-da-da-da as long as you don't get any signs on it, say, sponsored by anyone. Whatever, yeah. Whatever, I hated advertising in that way. <laughs> That's credit. funny for you. I mean, you well, taking credit for something like this should not be a corporate thing. It should be a private thing. And all I wanted was my daughter to open it, 
one of my own kids to think about and she did a wonderful job I don't know whether you ever saw the opening when it fl- first floated at Fremantle I can't you remember I remember little Jessie she was 11 and she was there she lives in New York and I should be horrified no, I still remember and as she got up to speak she was talking about can you imagine when the Aboriginal Australians when they saw us arrive they saw the white what would they think it would be like if we were here and a whole lot of purple people arrived <laughs> She just read Purple People Leaders, I think. But it was so politically incorrect, or was it? But everyone who was there just really got these little girls' wonder. People coming all the way from England not knowing whether there was a country here. It was nothing about race, it was nothing about any difference of opinions. It was purely the wonder of this boat going all the way from England to see if there was some land here and bumping into it. And I knew then that there could be a lot of dissension about the invasion boat versus... And that's why I asked my mate Mark Ella to represent me on the board because Mark, apart from being the greatest footballer I've ever seen, he was also Aboriginal and also shared with me the concept that the idyllic lifestyle the Aborigines enjoyed as the first settlers was never going to be allowed to last. There were too many Dutch, French, they were here already. And in hindsight, I've looked at all the history of settlement of those countries Portuguese, the Dutch, I think the English in history will show were the best new settlers they gave their law, they gave a lot of tolerance, even though there were a lot of terrible unforgivable things happened there are also some magnificent things happened and I still think we are doing wonderful things together I just wish one day, maybe not in my, life, my lifetime, maybe in yours there'll be a realisation we're just all Aussies I remember, sorry That's what mate, Lionel Rose said, that Lionel Rose said that he said I'm just great, glad to be in Australia. When he came back after he won the title, that was a great moment in Australia's history too, I thought. Yeah, it was. I love Lionel. He was the one of Charlie Perkins. I did that referendum for him in the 60s, where their Aborigines got to be counted on the census, allowed in licensed premises like pools, pubs. They could fight for Australia and be killed, but really? And I remember when we won that, I think the vote was 97%, and I think the other 3% must have not understood the question. Then Charlie Perkins said the night the referendum results came out, he put his arm on me, we were really close from his soccer days, and he said, mate, well, let's hope in 2020, which at that stage was 30 odd years away, we're just all Aussies, we're all mates. And I thought when the year 2000 came and we were not mates, we're still having this divide even now, as we're in the middle of the 21st century, we're getting no closer to being, well, we are individually, I, I don't see, I don't, I'm colourblind, I just, my mates are Aboriginal, they're white, exactly. they're black, they're Russian, I couldn't care less. Yeah. They're either good blokes, bad blokes, good birds, bad birds. But that was the wish. That was what we wanted. That one day we'd just all be Aussies, all be mates. That's from Charlie. Now, where was Charlie during the vote? Yes, vote no. Anyway. He was a great leader, it was Charlie Perkins. Listen, tell me about you, John Singleton. I understood you got out of racing. You still got a couple of horses, but you sold your... Yeah. I sold the breeding operation. Yeah. And you're out of advertising. What do you do with yourself, John? Oh, Apart from come to lunches and soirees on the Endeavour. <laughs> well, I talked to you, Mac. I talked to you about why you didn't even come across to TGB and I'm horrified to see that my offer to you never got revealed. Could have saved some money. You could have been rich and I could have been rich. Poorer, not less poor. Less poor. So what do you do with yourself? You're, you're still I, an interest in I still live in the Central Coast. I still I open bars and restaurants on, on a pretty good scale, pretty big scale. I also own a chain of dental clinics, medical clinics, and I do developments. High-rise, low-rise, medium-rise, which are really tasteful. I'm trying to give the Central Coast to put them on the map because it's all west, west, west. I'm a Westie, so I get that. But there's nothing up, the, nothing at the Central Coast. No, no, no uni, 
no jobs, very poor leadership. So I took it upon myself to make a few changes there. I've made very few changes at great expense. I note your friend Gay, Gay Waterhouse, said she's horrified that they're going to sell those proposing to sell Rose Hill. What's your take on all that? You're a racing man? I disagree with Gay. Not the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't disagree with her on horses. But I think that Rose Hill is an act of genius because we don't need two city racetracks, Ranwick and Rose Hill. We just don't need it. And to think we can build 25,000 houses and future-proof racing in one fell swoop, mate, there's plenty of other places to build a racetrack. Warwick Farm could be made modern, with Gosford, we looked at selling Gosford at one stage and redeveloping Wyong. Wyong itself has more training facilities than Ramwick or Flemington combined. So th- to sit back and just do today what we did yesterday is no answer. And one thing we've met with Peter Volandis is, mate, he's a steamroller. He has great ideas. We all do. He <laughs> makes them happen. We all don't. <laughs> I'm a great fan. I spoke to you, mate, Cole Joy, the other day. He yes. seems to be pottering along doing okay from time to time yes mate he's the bravest most beautiful Australian I've ever met he's got a face him and Jeff Lawson the old fast bowler their faces are the map of Australia I reckon and when I see Cole Grin I was always like this from when he released Bye Bye Baby and Oh yeah, ah. And heaven is my woman's love. I can sing that for you heaven (laughs) is my (laughs) I can't sing anything but Cole to me is just a beautiful man he's always positive water ski champion good boxer Great bloke, more important than all that. And he also has a tremendous capacity for friendship and love. And everyone he touches finishes up a better person. I think there's a bit of you in that, John Singleton. I wish. <laughs> it's great to talk to you, mate. And Lovely to talk to you, yeah, mate. And I'm sorry the offer didn't... If I buy GB again, will you come across? Yeah, I will. Yeah, I'll be there. OK, mate. Thanks, <laughs> Bob. Tristan and Charlene are in Lake Grace. Morning. Good morning, Macca. How are you? That's true. I spoke to you when I was in Perth last month, didn't I? You did, Macca. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And you were about to get married. We did, yes. That was uh, two weeks before our wedding. It's been nine weeks since the wedding. Well, there you go. So, well, how's married life? It's been good. I've been taking my time off and coming down to Lake Grace to visit Tristan while he's driving a grain truck. Oh. And it's nine degrees down here this morning and the sun's up and we're going for a walk before we get to the bins that open at seven. So, Tristan, how's the harvest looking? Yeah, it's good, Macca. Uh, I think they're pretty happy with the uh, volume of grain they're pulling off mm. and uh, got a couple of weeks left. And um, everyone else around the district starting to uh, to finish. So, yeah, we're getting to the tail end of it. And um, it's going really well, driving a beautiful uh, 700 horsepower Volvo truck, getting pretty spoiled, and uh, working for the Clark family, uh, who's been looking after us out here. So, yeah, it's been very nice, and and get to go for beautiful walks in the morning. And nine degrees sounds nice for people in the eastern states who've had some heatwave conditions. Nine degrees sounds a lovely time to be up in the morning. I tell you what, yesterday when I was jogging, my ears were pretty cold. It's uh, it's 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 definitely fresh, but it sets it up for a nice day. Yeah. So the the harvest is going full pace over there around Lake Grace and environs. Uh, yes, yes. Around this district, I think uh, I think it's most people are starting to finish. Um, we're we're definitely the tail end. Mm. Um, of, of the area, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of people celebrating that have finished, but uh, we like to keep the money rolling in. So the more grain in the paddock, the better. Yeah, exactly. Charlene, uh, the flies are gone from Newman, or um, what's the story there? 
Uh, they have, Macca, but we did have a very week, uh, hot week up there this week, so it's uh, quite cool for me to come down here. So you're on your uh, sort of week off, are you? I am. On my week off, and then I'll drive back up to Perth Monday and fly back to work Tuesday for the last week of uh, the year before we have some a Christmas break. So they have a break at Newman over the over Christmas, or do you keep... Uh, my team does, Macca, because uh, the government closes the roads for oversized movements. Uh-huh. So um, we can choose to either go to another department for Christmas or take some time off because we can't get any of our major components up to uh, do our shots. And why do they close the roads for oversized at Christmas? Is it for a particular reason? Um, or? Yeah, it's just for traffic. So not to hold up traffic to um, help with all the Christmas extra people on the road. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's a it's a win for us because it means I get to be home with Tristan for Christmas. Well, that's good. And you can help with the – do you help with the um, the harvest and – I, 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 mate, she's very well trained. Married life is married life is working out well for me. Uh, I have her operating the truck and uh, operating the tractors and the and the uh, field bin while I move the truck around, and then she, uh, yeah, she helps me. So she's being a very good wife. It's a, <laughs> it's a great time of year, isn't it? Uh, harvest time and Christmas time, they all come together, and there's something I don't know, something wonderful about it. I think. Yes, yes. I think this year it will be, but um, we we did a lot of oats this year, so we're going to have to, uh, oh, Leon's going to have to uh, bale all the oat straw, so he's he's still got a long stretch ahead of him once harvest finishes. Um, and I know last year they didn't finish until mid-January, which was uh, unfortunate last year, but no, this year's been a, a, a good season in the way of uh, finishing harvest for Christmas. Well, Tristan and Charlene, great to talk to you. Congratulations, and I hope we catch up next year sometime. Sounds, Sounds wonderful. Good. Looking forward to it. Good on you, kids. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas to you and to, uh, and to Lee as well. Good on you. Thanks, Tristan. Bye. Thanks, Charlene. Bye. Bye. In the studio with me this morning, I've got another bloke from the Endeavour. His name is John Dickenbird. He was a captain at one time. He's sailed the... Uh, Oh, it's the new endeavour, really, isn't it? John, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. They call it the new endeavour. I call it the no, endeavor. they don't call it the new endeavour. There they? was actually a ship called New Endeavour, but yeah, we refer I to so. it as yeah. um, the replica endeavour. But its official name is HMB Endeavour. HMB Endeavour. Yeah. There you go. It's. Uh, I've been on it a couple of times, not sailing, but I've just been on board. It's just. It's very almost spiritual to be on board a, a lovely old sailing ship and um, and think what went went on and. I was in Cook's cabin down the back there where he used to sit and, yeah, it's just, I suppose you feel that because you, you were on board for how many years? Uh, eight years. Mm. And, and I do sit back and relax in the, the captain's cabin as well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great place to uh, to be in that trip. Yeah. And how does it sail? I mean, you know, when it's out in the sea? Oh, it sails really well. Uh, it's quite remarkable because I'm also one of the captains on James Craig, so I can compare... Uh, and 18th James... century ship with a 19th century sailing ship. Yeah. And they are vastly different animals. But um, I endeavour is a really great sailor. And you can understand why Cook picked her as a, a ship to take around the world. Yeah, from from Whitby and from Yorkshire Whitby. and yeah. all yeah. that sort of stuff. It was a collier. Collier, yeah. yeah he used Full... to carry coal. Yeah. And uh, so and you, when were you sailing on the Endeavour? I was there from 2013 to 2020. 
Yeah. Uh, um, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about there. It's a wonderful thing. I think everybody should have the experience of going on board and not necessarily going for a sale, although that would be nice. But just We're getting to, youth for sale, though. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Sometime. Um, yeah. When I find my sea legs. Um, but it's just lovely to wander around, see all the – and it reminds me of Ray Parkin and his lovely book. That's where I sort of was first introduced to it. And and Ray was a lovely bloke. Um, we met him in Melbourne and uh, he was on board the Perth during the war and that was sunk and he, I think he was a midshipman on the on the Perth and mm. and I said, uh, why did you write? He's written two volumes. One volume is all the, the plans That's and right. whatever and ropes and yep. stuff and, and the other is the diaries of, I think, uh, Cook and Banks and one of the other um, sailors on board so that you can compare them, you know, on May the 5th we're here and Banks will say something and Cook will say something. So it's it's great. And I said to Ray Park, and I said, why did you write uh, this? Why did you do this? He said, well, every year, he said, at Christmas, which is now, um, he said, because I, I, he's a great drawer, great, and, mm. and a lot of people are. I remember the bloke, uh, but it doesn't matter, another story. But he could draw. So he said, every year, he said, I send a little cards out to everyone. And um, it was 1970, he said, and I thought, ah. Oh, 1970, 1970. Um, oh, the Endeavour. So he started ferreting around in books and stuff and he couldn't find anything that was, you know, because he was a bit of a you know fastidious, but he wanted something. So he, he gave up and then he thought, well, no, I'm going to get onto this. So he went over to England and found all the books and researched and, and, uh, and thereby hangs a tale. And uh, so we have that lovely volume of, about the Endeavour. Uh, they're, uh, they're great volumes, actually. And mm. uh, we carry them on the ship. I've got a private copy myself. Yeah. Yes. And they're just fantastic things. John, uh, when did you start, uh, when did that happen with you, sailing? Um, uh, well, <clears throat> actually, uh, I used to be in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And I was previously a submarine captain, which alarms most of my passengers <laughs> when they find out. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> And then after I left the Navy, I stayed in the marine industry in a variety of ways. And then in 2006, I got involved with James Craig. Yeah. And shortly after that, I became one of the masters on her. So, And then uh, in 2013, the previous captain left the ship. And I was approached by the Maritime Museum to see if I was interested. And uh, I jumped at the chance. There you go. Being on board the Endeavour the other day, when I met John and you and, and other people, it... and. And there's quite a few ships with masts and stuff in the in the harbour at the moment in Sydney Harbour, and it's juxtaposed against all the big buildings and Barangaroo, and it's quite a surreal thing because you, one minute you look across and there's four masts and um, and all these ropes in front of you, and then you look up this great huge modern modern uh, city skyline. It's it's just. It's fantastic, really. It's a wonderful thing. In my studio this morning, my guest is John Dickenberg, former <coughs> one-time captain of the Endeavour, HMV Endeavour. Is that right? HMV, yep. HMV, um, his master's voice. Um, <coughs> HMV Endeavour. And I was on board the other day and uh, spoke to quite a few people. There were people there from all over the place, from Cooktown and from the West, Western Australia. Because the Endeavour's really got links with all over Australia, hasn't it, John? It does. And, uh, you know, significance on that particular occasion is it's been 30 years since the ship was launched. So the people who were over from Western Australia were the people who were involved in developing the concept yeah. and putting it together. Yeah. And the people from Cooktown were there, I think, to give the message that um, Cooktown had long ago started this process of reconciliation, really mm. when Cook arrived. Yeah. So it was a great gathering of people. Yes. Tell me about the Endeavour. It's, it's 
really quite interesting. I remember reading in the New Yorker magazine, which I sometimes read and haven't read it for a while, but um, in about 1995 or something, I read a little short piece in the in New Yorker about the Endeavour being sunk at uh, Newport, Rhode Island, when they were doing the blockade for the in the uh, uh, War of Independence in America, and um, and I mentioned that back at the time, and now that seems to be a fact that that's where it is. And uh, but the so when was the Endeavour built, and when did it demise? So what was well, the original uh, Endeavour was um, built in 1764 mm. and operated until 1780, and uh, it went through a fairly convoluted process. It started off as a collier, then became Endeavour. So and that's a, a life of what sixteen years for the ship. Well, in fact, the actual time at sea was about fourteen years. Wow! But if you compare that, so that ship did fourteen years and then was written off. Mm. If you look at the, the endeavour that we have, H and B endeavour, oh, she's now been operating for well, it was launched thirty years ago and been at sea for twenty nine years. And I, and I was thinking because I'm wondering, man, I think, what are we going to do with this? How long? How do we keep this boat? I mean, I remember talking to Bern Cuthbertson, a, a great mariner uh, from Tassie, and he they rebuilt the um, in the Norfolk, um, which sailed around Tassie, um, Van Diemen's Land, when when Flinders did the mapping of it, and he built that. And then um, I said, "What are you going to do with this?" He said, "Well, he said well, I'm going to put. It, I'm not going to leave it in the ocean." He said, "We're going. They put it into a museum, I think, and that's where it is. It yeah. resides." So, but what do we do with the endeavour? We need the endeavour. The endeavour is part of our fabric, I reckon, part of the fabric of Australia, and it should be, always be around to remind people of all sorts of things. Well, look, I entirely agree, and in fact, um, the one the one uh, uh, impression you get of endeavour when you go on board is it has a soul, and mm. you know we need to to maintain that. Um, there are a lot of factors involved. The first one is money. Yeah, <laughs> it's always money, but. Um, um, so how how much does it take to uh, have, have a ship like the Endeavour sitting at port or sailing at sea? I mean, it co- and does the, the government give any money? I mean, we, the government's got largesse and throws money everywhere. I mean, you'd think that would be one of the important things. Well, the government does provide money, mm. uh, but it's adequate money to keep the ship alongside and maintain it. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, I guess in an annual budget, that's probably... Uh, three quarters of a million dollars, something in that order, to mm. keep the ship going. Uh, to go to sea, just as an example, because I had a professional crew of sixteen, and my daily crew bill is something like seven or eight thousand dollars. Mm. If I'm in harbour, um, we're also paying hotel bills because you can't sleep on the ship. It's set up as a museum when we're in, in port. So in any day in port with the crew on board, it's probably ten thousand dollars. Wow. So it becomes a very expensive process to keep it going. So how much? But how much would it cost to rebuild the? I mean, what well, did you, it cost? What did the original one cost? And it's really. Uh, I think irre- it, well, the uh, probably more relevant is how much the ship is worth now. And I'd mm. say, well, a you probably wouldn't build another one, but the reality is it's wow. probably worth I don't know fifty, sixty million dollars. You wouldn't more. build another one? Why? Because the skills are not available, or there's just not the the money to to do it. Because when you you know it's like the opera house, like everything, and say oh this or <laughs> the Northwest Connects or whatever. Oh, this is going to cost ten billion dollars, and of course, by the time you do it, it's three times that. And I suppose well, it's, it's the same uh, rebuilding. So, yes, uh, well, certainly money is a big issue, but also finding the skills. And uh, uh, the reality is that the secret to keeping Endeavour going is to maintain it, mm. which is what we do. And the reason that ship has lasted twice as long as the original Endeavour is because a lot of the money has gone into 
keeping the ship in the state it's in. Mm. And if you go on board now, it's still pristine. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? And in fact, I was asked this question at one of the occasions where, where we were marking the 30th anniversary. And, and my answer to that really was that um, we start, when I first started, um, I guess, that process of being the master, we, we used to talk about this ship will still be here in 50 years. And now we talk about the ship will still be here in 100 years. And I honestly believe as long as it's maintained and the money continues to be spent on it, then that ship will be here for as long as you want it. Yeah, but it really and it really is to me anyway, and I'm sure to lots of people. Certainly, to John Singleton, um, it's it's part of our fabric, a part of us, um, and uh, you can uh, extrapolate all sorts of stories about uh, Australia from that single boat and James Cook, who was a mighty man, uh, according to me, and as you know, as a mighty mariner, wasn't he? Indeed. Mm. Um, so, John, you, you don't sail anymore? or oh, I still do. Um, the only reason I left uh, Endeavour um, was that we got to COVID. We were about to go around Australia, actually. Mm. <laughs> and it was one occasion where we did have a lot of money. The government had poured a lot of money to do the circumnavigation. Mm. And then, of course, COVID came along. So I took the opportunity to go do a few other things. But I still sail as uh, one of the captains on James Craig. Mm which is another wonderful ship. Yeah, that was found in the bay in Tassie, wasn't it? It um, was, and that uh, that has a history all of its own. It was restored by a whole bunch of volunteers. There was probably 30 years and $30 million spent on it. It sails regularly. It's a good-looking boat oh, too, isn't it? It's a beautiful it? ship. Yeah, lovely lines. And but again... That, how does it sail? Does it sail? Oh, it sails, well? yeah. I looked, they, both those ships sail really well. Mm. But there are sort of virtues. You, um, if you take James Craig to sea, tacking it, which is where you take the bow through the wind to... Is, is quite hard work, and usually what ends up happening is halfway through the tack we start going astern, so you then, yeah, that's a sort of three point wow. turn. On Endeavour, she tacks really nice and really neatly. Um, so yeah, different ships, but they they both represent an important part of Australian history. Um, again, yeah. it's, for them it's money too, but it's a volunteer labour on James Craig. Um, and as I said, just to stand on the deck of the Endeavour. And look around and see all these masts everywhere. The James Craig's over there, and then you look further down, and there's the, you know, Richard Brans- Branson's cruise ships going past, and the Dovkins there. It's just mighty. It's you know, great Australian stories in all sorts of ways. Yeah, it, it honestly is. And I was halfway through saying at the last break where uh, we've got a 18th century ship, 19, uh, sorry, a uh, 17th century sailing ship, Dovkin, 18th century ship. Um, Endeavour, 19th is James Craig and then we've got Richard Branson Richard Branson, <laughs> but we also had those 20th century warships, so it's a museum right. that has 400 years There's a history, submarine there too, yeah. which I keep an eye on as well I have to say, there you go <laughs> What's it like being uh, on board a submarine? You have to be born to it I think, don't you? you if you know what I mean you... I hope you're not suggesting I was born on one No, <laughs> what I mean yeah, I, I, yeah, it's not for everybody like Lee Kelly here, is, she's claustrophobia, so we go anywhere near a cave or in a tunnel or in in, a, in an aeroplane, she's uh, no no good. Well, it's interesting because when I joined submarines, uh, in those days you went to the UK for the submarine course and then yeah. came back to Australia. And while I was at sea doing my practical part of my training, I went up to the captain and said, look, oh, I, don't know, I don't think this is really me. I'd like to go back to the surface Navy. Yeah. And he said, oh, look, John, uh, stick around for another month and if you still want to go, you can go. And about 20 years later, I was still playing around with submarines. So I need- <laughs> Even now, I left the Navy decades ago and I still play with submarines. So, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it grows on you. And oh, they're just unique 
trips in their own right. It's, yes. You're working in three dimensions. And, and, that's and, all that. and the sea teaches you lessons, I suspect, from talking to people like Ray Parkin that you don't learn on land. No, you don't. And, uh, yeah, and it's, and it's culture and, uh, his, and that's everything. It's, um, I mean, I love the ocean and yeah. I could think of doing nothing else in my life other than what I have done, going to sea. Uh, well, it's lovely to meet you on board the Endeavour. I think we spoke to you once when you were out and about somewhere. Who were the other captains? Chris Blake and uh, Chris Blake, Wally Master was. Uh, no, Ross Matson was Rossi the second Mas- master, then yeah. I was third master. Yeah, and uh, we now have uh, a new master. So there's four of us. Yeah, exactly. Well, lovely to meet you, and thanks for t- telling and explaining about the Endeavour, which is belongs to all Australians. I think it does all, very much. So. All Australians. It does all Australians. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Good on you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Maka. Good morning, Macca. This is Neil. I'm a farmer in the Tweed Valley and now a stroke survivor, which uh, is something I never thought I'd hear myself say. But this time last Sunday, I literally had all my movement and function regain in Gold Coast Uni Hospital after 24 hours, literally losing my right side. What were you doing at the time, Neil, when you had your stroke? Uh, I'm a farmer. I was up heading to work and literally just fell out of the truck. How old are you, Neil? 59. Wow. And, and apparently the stroke that I had is called a pontine stroke, which is typical for 45-year-olds. So I maintain I'm a lot younger than what I am. <laughs> <laughs> and and had you had any inkling of anything strange happening to your body? Just I don't Look, I don't know anything about it. You tell us. No inkling whatsoever. I'm just a typical farmer, typical stress, typical hard worker, missing a few meals, obviously. But... Um, it hit me like a light, lightning strike. Mm. One minute you're fine. I've done a first aid training course. I knew what to look for. I've had uh, somebody that I've actually called the ambulance for because I thought it was a stroke. But when it happens to you, uh, it probably took me 10 minutes to work out that I couldn't go and feed my pigs and look after my cows and had to ring my wife, Michelle, and it just came out as garbled, I think I'm having a stroke. And when I heard the mumble... It really hit me how bad it was. Neil, uh, it, it, when you said that about, um, I said that the other week, I only thought about it the other week too, that everybody should be trained. We should be trained to, for CPR. Is that what it's called, CPR? Everybody should be trained to be able to do that. Um, and and I suppose stroke, because if you're in a shopping centre or somewhere and someone has a stroke or a heart attack, you need to know what to do. You don't, you know, and I think if that happened to me, I'd be standing there like a stupid bum, you know, and I wouldn't be able to, do you know what I mean? I think we all should have some sort of training like that now. Unfortunately, um, yes, and even when it happens to yourself, you can still be confused. As I know now, the secret is to act fast. Mm. If, uh, you know, you have a face droop, if... Um, people can't lift their arms or a leg if their speech is slurred. Time is essential. You need to ring up triple zero because in my case, I was so lucky. Uh, we had really good ambulance guys up here on the tweet. Thanks, Mike and Gareth. Uh, got the tweet heads. Um, had the blood clotting dissolving drug within 90 minutes. And within 24 hours, the Gold Coast Uni Hospital, literally everything came back. This time last week, Everything came back, and I walked out of hospital on the Monday. So you you you're basically fine. No no after effects really. I haven't found any deficits yet, and I've been told I've got to sit down and 
don't do much for two to four weeks. So I'm sitting down, but just don't tell anybody. I'm, my seat moves. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, uh, while I was um, talking to you, I, I was looking for this because this came through the other day from a lady called Anne. It's just a Christmas card. I've got lovely Christmas cards with, with long... I can't read Anne's writing on most of the card, but, um, yeah, it's really not. But she sent this little thing. I came across these two quotes, uh, says Anne. It was ever thus. And I'll read them to you, Neil, because it might uh, give you a cause for... The farmer will never be happy again. He carries his heart in his boots. For either the rain is destroying his grain or the drought is destroying his roots. That was from a book uh, uh, called The Farmer, or a, a magazine called The Farmer in 1922. And this one says... Um, one for this is a, regarding seed plantings. One for the mouse, one for the crow, one to rot, and one to grow. That was an English proverb from the mid nineteenth century. Um, and she says, "Dazan, my thoughts are with the farmer Macca." Um, Neil, yours is a lovely story, and so it's a happy Christmas for you, really, isn't it? So, I don't know what, what's the doc say. Um, have you got to do anything now to change your lifestyle? Are you a big drinker or eat lots of uh, cream buns or what do you I'm do? No, I'm, I'm not uh, different from any other Aussie. Um, don't do things uh, silly. Uh, more importantly, though, yes, I've got to be careful. Mm. But there's two things I really want to emphasise. And as the hospital and the staff pointed out, you know, farmers and those that work outside are taking a, a large portion of the problems with patients that have strokes. So the emphasis on everybody is that if you feel something's going wrong or if people see something is going wrong, you call triple zero and you get help fast because what happened to me, I got the drug within four and a half hours and there's no deficits. So that's probably the biggest lesson for me is to get the word out. Maybe that was quite poignant you playing that song a little while ago. I'm glad I'm here to appreciate it because uh, that last Saturday uh, I wasn't appreciating much at all. But secondly, I'd certainly want to acknowledge our stroke survivors. I got off really lightly, but for all those stroke survivors out there, you know, I take my hats off to you because, um, you know, good on you guys. Yeah. yeah. And good on you, Neil. Thanks for your call, mate. Um, and what are, you, what are you doing for Christmas? Are you going to have a break? Uh, as we farmers do, there's always stuff to do, <laughs> but we'll probably go a little bit quieter. Yeah, we'll we... have family around, which is most important. Yeah, I had uh, a call this morning from a young bloke who's been on, what, what was the name of the station? Murray Murray Downs, I think, Murray Downs in the Territory, and he was on his way home because he was, uh, they don't have a lot to do over Christmas. I think, what's, I wrote it down, one point something, 1.3 million square acres, I think, and it's mostly a cattle place, but he said, we mostly closed down over, um, not closed down, but yeah, it's pretty quiet over um you know, December, January, which is probably good. So uh, I wish that for you, Neil, that you can uh, maybe sit down, smell the smell the daisies or smell the veggies or something. <laughs> well, I can guarantee I'll be sitting down, maybe not uh, stationary, but there's always stuff to do on the farm, as everybody knows. And when you've got livestock, you always have to care for them. So uh, I'll be a little bit more careful, and I hope uh, those that are business operators and other farmers and our fellow Aussies are a little bit more careful as well and just to be, to be aware. Great to talk to you, Neil. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Maka. Merry See Christmas. You. Yeah, same to you. G'day, Maka. It's Brenda. How you doing? Yeah, good. Not bad. What about you, Brent? Bloody marvellous. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Where are you, Brenda? I'm in Mount Warrigal in Wollongong. All right, yeah. 
Uh, your emailer was absolutely on the money there. It's a, it is a parent's tree frog, and the, um, the, the scientific name or whatever you call it is Latoria peroni. And the reason why I know it is the minute you played it, it is identical to the frog. And I, every time I hear it, I record it and send it in on the Frog ID app, and it comes back the same every single time. And it was identical to the call you put over the radio. Yeah. So your emailer was spot on. He was on the money. Yeah, well, the other bloke said it's a northern something, but um, no, it's the parent. No, it's the parent. It's a parent's tree frog, and I'm pretty sure if you actually go onto the Frog ID app or onto the Australian Museum, you can find the frog IDs and the frog um, calls, and you can actually call, listen to one of the ones they've recorded, and you'll hear it for yourself. It's the same one. Well, isn't it funny? Because as I said previously, when I was um, over at my mum's place about four or five years, or four years ago, Kel, it was. And we found this little, t- we heard this noise like that, but it was much higher pitch. And mm. and uh, and then we found this little frog, which was as big as my thumbnail, like and yep. a little green, little green. And I looked it up and it's the dwarf green tree frog. And he had a little high pitched little, like a trill, a bit like that. But that's not a trill. That's more like a baritone sax. It's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's or somebody's yep. trying to start their car. Um, so uh, there you go, Perrin's Tree Frog. I wonder where Perrin's Tree Frog ar- arrived from. But anyway. I don't, I don't know. And sometimes they get in my drain pipes and that's when you really hear them good because they're echoing in the in the drain pipes. Uh, but I've got one, at least one out the front and at least one out the back. But I use the Frog ID app and if you actually hear the frog going, you just click on it and hit the record button and you record it and send it in. And they'll send you back an email saying, this is what your frog is, and it gives you all the information about the frog that you've been listening to. So, Brenda, you know your frogs, you know your onions, as I as I would say, yeah. Well, I got involved in the Frog ID app thing because they do, they've only just done it recently where they do a week of it and they ask everyone to, well, they can do it any time of the year, but they have an absolute week where they want you to go out and specifically listen for it. Mm. I've only got one type of frog around me, but I, I'm happy to record him all the time. And they don't care if you're if you're recording the same frog three times a day and sending it in because mm. it gives them an idea of how healthy the frog population is. They can tell from the calls and right. it just gives them a way of monitoring the, the health of frogs. Yeah. There you go. Brenda, tell, what, uh, tell Australia what it's like living in... On or in or at Mount Warrigal? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> I'm not very far from the opening of um, Lake Illawarra, so I can just see the ocean from, from where I am. Uh-huh. Um, in this really hot weather, it, it hasn't been too bad because when the sea breeze comes in, it just sort of comes across and comes straight up the mountain. It's like they a little... Mount Warrigal, yeah. but it's not, yeah, it's not really a mountain. I mean, not as mountains go, but yeah, it's called Mount Warrigal. More yeah, like a bump. It's, it's nice. But if there's any kind of breeze going, it tends to run up the hill. So you, you're generally getting a cooling off effect most times. So that's, that's why it's pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's why people like to live near the sea. It's uh, it's a bit yeah. of an air conditioner, isn't it? And the other thing that was good for um, on Saturday was I heard the um, Southern Cross take off on its um, first um, sort of public flight. The, um, uh, what do you call it? Inaugural well, flight. Yeah, the the one um the oh, I can't think I'm just stuck for the word they they the one that they um had in in um South Australia about fourteen years ago and they 
um, the the real ones up in Queensland in a museum. That's right. Yep. Um, yeah, but they the, they the redid airport. it, and it, yeah, it crashed in Adelaide in South Australia 14 years ago. So they brought it over to Haas, and they spent 14 years restoring it all. It's a replica. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Anyway, it went up. Noisy as all get out, let me tell you, so you can hear it coming. And if you hear hear a noisy plane going over the Illawarra, run out because you're probably going to see the Southern Cross going over. <laughs> it's a bit like the Endeavour, isn't it? The Southern Cross, it's part of our fabric. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it took off from Seven Mile Beach just south of here. So they're hoping to get it to go further and further on some of its flights and eventually they might take people up in it. But at the moment, it's only authorised people going up. So... But, I mean, it's great what they've done. Absolutely great. Haas are just amazing what they, they are, do. They are. They are. Yeah. Good yeah. on you, Brenda. Lovely to talk to you. Happy Christmas you to you. We're yeah. here for another, Thank you. We're here for another couple of weeks. We're, Christmas Eve's our last program. Which oh, is that's the, music to my ears. Yes. Makes me skip inside knowing I'm going to have you on a Sunday morning. <laughs> music to your ears just like this. Yeah. That's it. See you, Brenda. Perrin's Tree Frog. See you later. Have a good one. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.